Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you are doing very well, just like me. So, uh, let us see who all is there with us. I can see Tukesh, Arnavo, Vladimir Adityanath, Vansh, Akshay, Invincible, Amit, Piyush, Jai, Samarth, Senpai, Praveen, Shweta, Atharva, Devyansh, Mohit, Sanatani, uh, Kashish Singh, Dongar Singh Chauhan, Chiching, Twilight, Informative Mania, Chaitanya, Aditya, Aditi, Nahela, Purobi, Shivang, Priyanshi, Shri Hari, Parag, Farnis Shorts, Abhiraj, Kalyan, Nihal, Rajat, Vlogger Sharma, Heisenberg, Kesio Berwa, Amai, Christopher, Anthony, Divyansh, and lots of other people. Shashwat, Trupti, Anshul, Madhavan, Abhinav, Karan, Arnavo, and everyone else. Uh, great to see you all. Great to see you all. So as always, I have picked a bunch of questions and let us get right into those questions. Okay, fifth question number one, which is by Mega Raz. India being gifted a seat in the Security Council is the most ridiculous myth. The Security Council was made up of the victors of WW2 and India was nowhere in the scene of demanding, let alone, let alone being gifted a seat at the table. If they could just give away a Supreme Court SC seat, Security Council seat, why can't they gift it to India now when we are a strong country? And so on and so on and so on and so on. And Mr. Nehru was very smart and he saw the bluff that the US was dangling a carrot and so on and so forth. So... So this is not a question, it's it's a claim, and, and, and this gentleman or person is saying that I am wrong, that uh, the offer, I, I have said that there was an offer, to, there were multiple offers to India of a seat in the UN Security Council, and this person is saying it's a complete myth, and I'm, I'm completely mistaken, and Mr. Nehru was a great uh, visionary and smart and all that. All right, fine, okay, if you say so. So what's the evidence that I have? Is there any evidence? Well, let's let's look at the evidence. Is there any evidence? You don't believe me? It's fine. I get it. I get it. You don't believe me. But what about this fine gentleman here? Uh, this is an article from the Hindu, January 10, 2004. It says, Nehru declined offer of permanent UN seat. Okay? And, and, and read who says this. Jawaharlal Nehru declined a United States offer to India to take the permanent seat on the UN United Nations Security Council around 1953 and suggested that it be given to China. According to the then United Nations Under Secretary General, Shri Shashi Tharoorji. And that's what Mr. Tharoor has written in his latest book of that time, Nehru, the Invention of India. Yeah? So if you don't believe me, do you believe the great, the mag magnificent Shri Shashi Tharoorji or not? Do you? Do you not? And and let's let's examine this case further. Yeah. So there is uh, this publication, very uh, very prominent and famous publication called the Wilson Center. Yes, the Wilson Center. Uh, and this is an article from a few years ago, not at the coast of China. India and the UN Security Council, 1950, right? So it's about new evidence regarding US proposals to Nehru for joining the United Nations Security Council uh, and so on. Uh, 
so there was an offer there was an offer in 1955 so mr tharoor has has uh, revealed like i showed that there was an offer by the us by the united states to mr nehru in 1953 now there is there was an offer in 1955 also which was a soviet offer a soviet offer and someone called nurani wrote a defense of nehru's decision and he tried to say that this was just a feeler to test india and so on but there was an offer in 1955 all right by the by the soviet union the ussr uh so mr nehru said that the status of the people's republic of china in the un should take priority before any consideration be given to the necessary revision of the of the un charter for the admittance for of any new permanent members so he said that even you even though you're offering it to india pri the priority should be first given to china then there was also an offer in 1950 from the united states so 1950 us 1953 us 1955 ussr three offers yes and mr nehru said that india because of many factors is certainly entitled to a permanent seat in the in the security council but we are not going in at the cost of china yeah uh india's ambassador in beijing optimistically briefed shown shown lie that they believed in the uk and egypt would support the prc's assumption of china's security council seat giving it majority support so they were lobbying to ensure that china gets this thing yeah that's that's the kind of thing nehru's determined rejection of the us plan to place india in china's seat in the un security council reflected the particular reverence and centrality placed on the un by what one might call a nehruvian foreign policy Uh, that nehru made so adamantly clear that india did not want to replace china in the un security council and furthermore that the uh, issue of china's representation in the un must take a priority over any possible consideration of india gaining a permanent seat in the body underlies the centrality of china to nehru's foreign policy okay and and that's what it was so this nehru's response to the us offer underlined indian agency in its difficult relations with the us so mr nehru made things very difficult for india by doing all these things the united states wanted to offer that permanent seat in the un security council to india and mr nehru repeatedly rebuffed this offer and he said that priority should be first given to china only then should we talk about india whom was mr nehru serving was he supposed to serve the people of india the country the the nation of india or was it supposed to serve the people of china yeah whom whom was it supposed to serve that's the question so he repeatedly he repeatedly rejected these offers not just from the united, united states but also from the ussr and and here's something interesting and then we know that then there's also this offer that the us made during president kennedy's time of offering nuclear weapons technology to india and mr nehru rejected that as well this is before 1962 when india and china went to war when china invaded india had india acquired nuclear weapons technology at that time china would have not dared to invade india in 1962 so mr nehru ensured that this doesn't happen now there's one more interesting piece of evidence this is after 1962 this is a, a news clipping from 1963 please take a look at this a news clipping from 1963 India still supports bid of China for United Nations seat. 
The sister of Prime Minister Nehru said on Friday that India is ready to support China's admission to the United Nations even though her country fears a new attack by Chinese troops. It's a matter of principle. It has nothing to do with relations between any country and the government of China. Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, uh, the sister of Mr. Nehruji, said at a news conference in New York. Yeah. I don't see how there can be a world organization from which one-fifth of the world's people is excluded. So once again, even after the Chinese war on India, Mr. Nehru and his sister were pushing for China's inclusion in the United Nations Security Council at the cost of India, at the expense of India. So this is the kind of foreign policy India had. So these claims that Mr. Nehru was... uh, uh, smart enough to see something or whatever, and this uh, offer is a myth. Come on, who who are you? You what, what world are you living in? Whoever this gentleman or person is, this is an established fact. Multiple people, very high-ranking people, have written about this. Mr. Tharoor has written about this. The former President Mr. Pranab Mukherjee also wrote about this in his book. Please go and read his book, and also about uh, the the Nepal affair. I mean, everything will come out once we start talking about these things. All right. So that's where we are. We, we we cannot deny the fact that Mr. Nehru was a magnificent, multi, multi-talented, great, great human being, Shri Nehruji. But uh, facts are facts. And facts don't care about anyone's feelings. So there we are. All right. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. This is by Navanit. How prepared are we to tackle any sort of disturbance, both internally and externally, regarding the G20 summit 2023, which is to be held in Jammu and Kashmir? What will be our neighbor's plans? Is this a, is this a major step towards reclaiming what we have lost? How will this event change the outlook of people on JNK and indeed India at the global level? Uh, Yes, the next G20 summit, the one in 2023 next year, is going to be held, to be held in Jammu and Kashmir. So all these uh, heads of state, etc., whoever will participate, will come to India and they will uh, come to Jammu and Kashmir, wherever this is being held. And the conference, the meet will be, the summit will be organized and and held over there. So this uh, essentially serves uh, as a recognition by the whole world that JNK is a part of India. Right, because th- there are certain uh, forces in the world that are trying to dis- to to uh, portray JNK as disputed territory. We know wh- which which forces these are, right? So the G20 includes the major industrialized and and developing nations of the world, and they will all participate in the summit in JNK, which uh, essentially is a recognition of the fact that JNK is part of India, and will always be and has always been part of India, right? So the question is, how prepared are we to to tackle any disturbances? We will be extraordinarily well prepared. This is a, one of one of the most important events that can happen, the G20 summit, and we will take all possible measures to ensure that it goes off smoothly. There will be certain forces, certain powers who will want to make India look bad, and they have done things in the past. When President Trump visited India in Delhi, you know what happened in Delhi at the time. And I wonder who was behind that. These are forces that, uh, I mean, these events are often orchestrated from outside India. Right? So uh, the same forces would want to do something, but uh, this time I'm sure we will be even better prepared and nothing is going to be allowed to happen. Now, what about our neighbor's plans? 
our neighbor always has bad plans they always want to uh, throw a spanner in the works that's what they want to do but it's very simple how to deal with them all we all india will have to do i'm sure it will be done is inform our our our, our neighbor that no if if anything at all goes wrong no matter who has done it we're going to blame you and you're going to have to face consequences you can't you can't even imagine that's all we have to tell the isi and the generals if something goes wrong it doesn't matter who did it we're going to put the blame on you and you're going to face the consequences the kind of consequences you cannot imagine that's all we have to tell them we are certainly in a position to send pakistan back to the stone age if we want to so they also know it so that's it that's all we have to do and yeah so that's where we are is this a major step towards reclaiming what we have lost it's 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 a process we will eventually reclaim everything we have lost and and more the time will come uh, so this is this is one step in that process it's not a major or minor step it's it's a step in the process right next Samarth says, considering BRICS expansion, should India invite Vietnam and the Philippines to prevent it from become, becoming China-centric? What should be India's approach according to you? So I don't think the BRICS has a formal charter and uh, procedure for admitting new members. It's, it's kind of an informal kind of arrangement. Uh, initially, it was just a BRIC, B-R-I-C, Brazil, Russia, India, China, four nations. Uh, until... I think it was formed in 2006 or thereabouts. And a few years later, South Africa was admitted. So it, it went from a brick to BRICS, B-R-I-C-S. Uh, now one hears that uh, Argentina and Iran have uh, requested admittance to this group. So it could... Uh, uh, so I don't know what it will be called then. B-R-I-I-C-S-A or something. <laughs> I don't know what it will be called. Uh, so... This, I think this offer, this request has been made to China, possibly. I'm not sure who, who they've made to. Uh, so there needs to be a proper consensus about, about uh, among the five countries as to whom should be admitted, whom should not be admitted, and so on. There, should, there has to be a proper uh, uh, procedure for uh, process, processing such uh, such requests and applications for admittance to the BRICS group grouping. Uh, I would not consider Argentina to be very strongly pro china iran of course is now beholden to china after the big deal that they have uh, concluded uh, the chinese are going to invest uh, i don't know 40 billion or so dollars 40 billion 40 trillion i'm not sure yeah it's not trillion it's billion maybe 40 50 billion dollars worth of money into iran in various forms so iran is now beholden to china if iran enters brics the the grouping will become more pro china more china centric uh, so in that, so I'm not sure that uh, Iran and Argentina will be admitted into the grouping without taking the express consent and permission from India. I suppose that the founding members would have a veto as to who can be, I mean, who can be admitted or not. So I, this is something that's going to be taken forward. And I think all of these things need to be formalized, the steps and procedures and all that. And there should be a proper charter of the grouping, what are the objectives and what is the, how, how things should be taken forward and all that. So eventually these things will happen. I think it's time for this uh, grouping to become more mature. And uh, yeah, so once that is done, then uh, 
these applications and requests can be processed as per procedure and things can, can be taken forward. It is important that the, this grouping does not become too China-centric. China obviously is the largest uh, economy and most powerful nation in the BRICS grouping. Uh, from the economic perspective, China is number one, India is number two. From the military perspective, China is number two, and Russia is number one, number one perhaps, something like that. Uh, so yeah, we need balance in BRICS, and uh, this needs to be taken uh, care of at the appropriate levels. Uh, so yeah, that's where we are. As of now, nothing, uh, no, uh, no decision has been made about whether Argentina and Iran are to be admitted or not. But the offer has come, come through, and let's see what, uh, how this is processed. Okay, your favor says India get its first unmanned aircraft as DRDO tested it successfully. What are your thoughts on this and what happens in DRDO that they have become so active, so much researching? See, DRDO is always active in, in, in uh, implementing certain projects. Some of these projects are classified that we, and we may not know about them. This particular project that you are mentioning, uh, it has come out in the open. It is in the news. It's called DRDO Ghatak, I think. Uh, so what does it look like? What does this... Uh, aircraft look like let me show you one second it's a flying wing aircraft it was called aura earlier now it's called ghatak uh, let me share the screen and show you what the uh, aircraft looks like so this is still uh, in the early days all right this is a flying wing kind of thing it's a stealth aircraft autonomous i'm not sure if it's auto autonomous but it's uh, unmanned so there are no pilots on this thing. It's an unmanned vehicle. Uh, this obviously is not an Indian vehicle, but yeah, all right. It, it looks something like this. And the first uh, test has occurred. It's of a scaled down model, not a full scale model, but yeah, it, it uh, demonstrates the that the technology works. So now the next step is that you make a full scale model and you fly that. So this is uh, how it is supposed to look, roughly. It's a drone. You can call it a drone or whatever. It's a stealth combat drone. Ghatak or Swift or Aura or whatever the name is. Eventually, they will name it, name it something else, I suppose. Doesn't matter. So that's what's happened. This is an excellent step. It's a very important step. This technology is something that nobody will ever share with India. Nobody will transfer this technology. This is cutting-edge technology. Only uh, three countries, I believe, have this. Three or four countries. The US has it. The Russians have it. They have the Okhotnik aircraft. The Chinese uh, possibly may have something like this. I'm sure they do. And now we in India have this. So this is still in development. It's not uh, come into production. They they have to, the DRDO has tested a scaled down version of this aircraft, but it works. So it's been proven. The technology has been demonstrated. It's been proven. Now they have to take it to the next step, uh, create a full scale version, test it out, a prototype, test the prototype, see how it works, improve upon it, make two three more prototypes, and eventually you come up with the final version that goes into production. And even that will be over time improved upon. And maybe that can give rise to a whole class of aircraft, you know, uh, a, a, a reconnaissance drone, a bomber, a fighter, and things like that. So these would have different configurations, different weight classes, and different payloads, and all those things. 
so that will happen eventually over the next decade or so this is a, a very important step an excellent step i am very pleased to hear this yeah so uh good job drdo good job good job government that you have uh, taken this forward and uh, it needs to uh, it needs to carry on so they have the drdo is active uh it's a good organization the the thing is that it's it's well i've spoken about this before like drdo versus darpa both organizations were started were were, were uh, founded in 1958 i believe and darpa has gone so far ahead darpa darpa of the us they have gone so far ahead and they have come up with all kinds of incredible technology drdo is kind of lagged behind in drdo does drdo has done well but it it hasn't reached the heights that darpa has reached and there are very simple reasons for that darpa and drdo have very roughly similar budgets similar budgets but darpa has 150 employees drdo has 25000 employees roughly out of which 20000 are non scientists so that's where all the money is being misused it's been it's been used for non scientific purposes you cut out all, all of the non scientists all the non non research staff you keep only the, only the scientists and then you will see the progress exponentiate kind of you know so anyhow this is excellent uh, progress and uh, one must upload drdo and please take it forward so good job very pleased to see this uh rohan vidate says how many <laughs> how many churches or mosques were built by his royal highness chhatrapati shivaji maharaj during his reign the question is simple but i didn't get any satisfying answer from the internet please answer this question so i am not sure what sort of answer would satisfy you but uh to the best of my knowledge his royal highness shri chhatrapati chhatrapati shivaji maharaj ji built zero churches and zero mosques during his reign to the best of my knowledge right so that's the answer i'm not sure if it will satisfy you or not but that's the answer uh that's to the best of my knowledge if anybody has better knowledge please share and please correct me but to the best of my knowledge he did not build any church uh, build any churches or mosques right that's that's the answer right veer pratap says i want to know your opinion on the excavation conducted on the gulf of cambay in the mid 2000s they had found a sit- sunken city of about 5 square kilometers the interesting part is that this is different from dwarka yes some of the artifacts there predated 32000 years which i find crazy these artifacts were sent to different countries for carbon dating can you please tell us your opinion as a city 32000 years years old seems to be quite an impossible thing so from what i have seen uh this uh so wh- where is the gulf of cambay it's not cambay by the way it's khambat i don't know why we keep using these uh, foreign names for indian places so let's take a look at the map and let's see where it is the gulf of khambat it is in the sea of saurashtra which is incorrectly called the arabian sea right similarly the bay of bengal is actually kalinga mahasagar or kalinga sagar anyhow the bay of khambat is right here it is the neck of gujarat if if gujarat is the, is a face is if it's the face of india in a way, in a sense then this here is the bay of khambat the gulf of khambat or whatever you want to call it this is the place right and this uh, is a very ancient region and over here uh over the past 20 years they have done a few marine expeditions in this region 
and they have found evidence of human inhabitations human settlements under water right over here uh, including a fully formed city which is apparently older than uh, then harappa uh, mohenjo mohenjodaro um, so this this uh, date that you you're mentioning here 32000 years that's something i've not seen anywhere uh, they found lots of artifacts under the ocean they found an entire city they don't quite know what is the extent of the city but it's a fully formed well developed city and one of the pieces of uh, one of the artifacts they found was carbon dated to about 9500 years before today so if that is the age of the city then we have a full fully fledged fully formed well developed city that is 9 and 1/2000 years old that is incredible because the oldest uh, saraswati sindhu archaeological site that we have which is bhirana in haryana is 9 and 1/2000 years old and that's very old right so that is tentatively held to be the beginning of the saraswati sindhu phase of india civilization now if this fully developed city is 9 and 1/2000 years old it's it's underwater that that's, that's incredible that tells you that indian civilization was highly developed 10000 years before today and now some people are are, are claiming that you know uh, this date may be wrong because this piece of wood may have come from somewhere else but think about it this way this city has been found under the ocean why is it found under the ocean to understand why it's under the ocean we have to understand when was the last ice age the last glacial period of our planet uh lasted from about 110000 years before today 1.1 lakh years before today to about 11000 years before today so the last ice age ended about 11700 years before today at the end of the younger dryas period and the last glacial maximum was about 20000 years before before today so when the last ice age was still in force yes at that time uh, let's see what uh, the geography of india looked like so at that time the indian subcontinent in its geography looked something like this as you can see there is much more land mass that was accessible because it was a it was an ice age and lots of water was actually frozen across the oceans and that's why the sea levels were much lower than what they are today and that's why india looked like this at the time the indian subcontinent looked like this sri lanka was very much connected to india the entirety of gujarat extended far far more westwards than what it does today and so on this is what it looks like so at that time it would have been possible to have a city where today you have the gulf of khambath right and this is the last ice age which ended about 11700 years before today call it consider it to be roughly 12000 years before today so if you have a city that's currently under the ocean that city would have been built at least 12000 years before today so the carbon dating nonsense is is not even an issue if the piece of wood is 9500 years old then it is younger than the city because the city has to be at least 12000 years old for it to be underwater today so that's where we are so uh, i don't know what the exact date is the city is clearly minimum 12000 years old a fully fledged fully developed city well planned city larger than harappa and mohenjo daro 
and as well planned and as well developed with with full architecture and and a swimming pool kind of thing and what not you know so that's the kind of uh, architecture and, and and technological advancements we had in india 12000 years before today at least if not older so that essentially pushes back the timeline of indian civilization to at least 12000 years before today like uh, until i mean one says people generally say that india is 10000 years old at least right because birana the oldest saraswati sindhu archaeological site is 9500 years old but this city in the gulf of khambat is at least 12000 years old and it's a fully developed city so if it took about 3 4000 years for the technological development to reach that stage then indian civilization is at least 15000 years old and so on so that is incredible so i don't know about this dating that you are uh, mentioning of 32000 years i have not come across that anywhere if you have then you can please let, let us know in the comments and i'll i'll take a look at that but it's at least 12000 years old that is guaranteed that's incredible that's older than the other sites that the people talk about gobekli tepe and so on it's way older than that incredible isn't it so uh, it it just keeps getting more and more interesting right history and archaeology all right next question rinigan says uh, can you please talk about the seven years devastation of manipur and assam by the burmese from 1819 to 1826 many people don't talk about this it's not even included even in our history books even people in the northeast don't know properly about this tragedy it is said to be the equivalent of the holocaust while the burmese have always been portrayed as a peace loving society and uh, so on and so forth right okay the seven years devastation of manipur chahi tarit kuntakpa that's what they call it from 1819 to 1826 so this was a terrible terrible time seven years of of complete devastation of manipur at the hands of the burmese empire or kingdom right so what is this what happened there so to understand what happened you have to go back i always go back a couple of uh, centuries in time so let's go back just a little bit uh, it all begins so to say with uh, the the manipuri king pamaiba so pamaiba is uh, considered to be uh, the most successful conqueror in the past 1000 years in manipur right uh, he was the son of pitambar charairongba So Pamaiba ruled from about 1690 to about 1750 and he is the king who introduced Vaishnavism as the state official state religion of Manipur at the behest of uh, what was his name some uh, Bengali preacher so what he did was he introduced Gaudiya Vaishnavism being the Bengali form of Vaishnavism as the official state religion of Manipur and he uh, indulged in multiple military conquests he was a very successful conqueror uh, Pamaiba uh his um, his kingdom spanned from uh, the iravati river the irawadi river in burma in the east to kachar and tripura in the west and it also included the so called chattagong hill tracts uh, which are currently in bangladesh right so he was one of the most successful military conquerors of manipur in the past 1000 or so years he also introduced vaishnavism as the official state uh, gaudiya vaishnavism uh as the official state religion in in manipur which kind of uh, which kind of in some sense uh, transformed the manipuri society from a society of warriors to a society of of people who kind of uh, 
looked at other things uh, with uh, yeah that sort of thing you know into a more peace loving society it's, there's nothing wrong with it being peace loving but it kind of softened up manipuri society this specific form of vaishnavism gaudiya vaishnavism now what happened is that when pamai uh, bad died the succession went wrong he had a good son a, a capable son whose name was whose name was shyamasai but this shyamasai was assassinated by his, his own brother ajit sai and uh, there was this uh, squabble for succession and uh, you know there was a lot of political instability eventually the assassinated son's son which means the grandson of pamaiba whose name was chingthang khomba became the king of uh, manipur he was a very good king he ruled for about 50 years he was known as rajarshi bhagyachandra he introduced uh, i mean uh, manipuri classical dance and a great deal of culture and all that and then uh, after after the death of uh, bhagyachandra you had a couple of kings who came on who who ruled who were not that uh, good as rulers and so on and then uh mani the manipuri king kind of became a vassal of the of the burmese and then there was a new burmese king who came to power he ordered the manipuri king to attend the coronation the manipuri king refused and in retaliation the burmese king sent an army invaded manipur conquered manipur and then there was seven years of devastation in which at least 5 lakh manipuris were murdered half a million and another at least another 3 lakh manipuri men women children were taken as slaves into burma and today their descendants would still live today and lots of manipuris had to escape from manipur and go into assam and uh, Beng- even bengal and all and that gave rise gave, gave rise to the bishnupriya manipuris and all that so it was a terrible period 7 years of complete devastation the burmese tried to eradicate the manipuri people completely because burma and manipur had been had been at war from time to time in a cyclic manner for centuries and the bani and the burmese wanted to completely eradicate manipur as a threat forever so they tried to uh, essentially conduct genocide in manipur <clears throat> imagine manipur is a small place do we even know where manipur is let's take a look at the map <clears throat> excuse me let's take a look at the map and see where manipur is where is the map here's the map uh here is the map so let's go here so if you can see this is the city of imphal which is the capital of manipur and to the east you have burma to the south you have a uh, yangon rangoon and so on mandalay a major city and then you have the great iravati river which i believe is this here it is the iravati they call it the irawadi so that's the region we are talking about so the the burmese invaded manipur they occupied manipur for 7 years they killed at least half a million manipuris took another 300000 plus manipuris as slaves and devastated the place they would what they would do is they would uh, put manipuri men women and children uh, in an enclosed house or something shut them inside <clears throat> and then burn chilies and suffocate them by by burning them burning the chilies and kill them that way so very very brutal kind of occupation which lasted for 7 years eventually what happened is that the king of manipur whoever was the king at the time he uh brought in the british right so the british got involved in this 
Then there was the first Anglo-Burmese war, I think in 1824 or something. And eventually the British got involved because of this. So Manipur was freed from the Burmese. The Manipuri king had to become kind of a vassal of the British. The British were already ruling other parts of India at the time, especially Bengal. Bengal is the first colonized place in India. And the effects are still visible. <laughs> so uh, so that's how the British got involved. And eventually in 1891, there was the Anglo-Manipuri war, which the Manipuris lost. And Manipur was totally destroyed from there onwards. So the uh, Manipuri royal lineage was destroyed and a puppet king was put in place. And Manipur became a princely state. And today's so-called Manipuri kings are descendants of those puppets. That's how it is. Every single princely state in India was in some way or some shape or form a collaborator with the British. So that is what happened. And that is in brief the story of the seven years devastation of Manipur. Uh, which was a disastrous uh, period and which changed Manipur forever. Chahi Tarat Kuntakpa. So that's what it was. Okay, Saurabh says, Who was Amavasu? Mentioned in the Bodhiyana Shrota Sutra. Was he the founder of the Persian civilization? Interesting question. Who was Amavasu? Right. Who is this person? Let's take a look at who was Amavasu. So, once again, let me let me share my screen. So this is an article I wrote in 2017. This is where it all began, the Aryan invasion thing. In this article, which I wrote in 2017, I had put uh, together all the evidence from a variety of different uh, disciplines, archaeology and geology and linguistics and genetics and whatnot. So let's take a look at this particular uh, piece of evidence. So... This is the Bodhiyana Shrota Sutra, which is a late Vedic text. So it records that it's a Sanskrit text, obviously, it's a Vedic text. It says that Amavasu migrated westward. His people are the Gandhari, the Parshu, and the Aratta. Okay, that's what this text says. So this refers to a Vedic king called Amavasu, whose people are the Gandhari, which is clearly the people of Gandhar, Afghanistan. Then the Parshu, which is clearly the Persians, our, our Persian brethren and sisteren, and the Aratha. So the Aratha are tentatively identified as living in the vicinity of Mount Ararat in Anatolia and Armenia. So, uh, so that's what it is. Now, the traditional Armenian name for Mount Ararat is Masis. It is named after the legendary Armenian king Amasya. This name Amasya is linguistically re related to the name Amavasu of the Indian king recorded in the Bodhiyana Shrota Sutra. Right? So that is who Amavasu is. That's what we know. That is the evidence that we have. That's the information that we have. So the question, so, so that is Amavasu. He was a Vedic king from the Vedic period, late Vedic period. And apparently he migrated westward with, with his people. And his people are identified as three separate two ethnic groups of today. The Gandhari, which is the Afghans of today. The Parshu, which is the Persians of today. And the Aratha, which, which seems to be the Armenians or the people around Mount Ararat. That's what it seems to be. So the real question is, was he the founder of the Persian civilization? It's The text says that his people are the Persians as well, the Parshu. But um, I would not say that Amavasu is the founder of the Persian civilization. Because uh, 
the Persian civilization was founded by the Parshwa clan, which was one of the clans that ended up on the losing side in the Battle of the Ten Kings, which happened possibly in a pre-Rigvedic era. Possibly. So uh, that would certainly predate the time of the Bodhiyana Shrota Sutra. So somehow it seems that Amavasu was related to the Gandhari people, to Parshwa people and the uh, Aratha people. Um, which people? Yeah, the Aratha people. So, so we don't know in what way he was related to them, but somehow he was. So maybe that's something that needs to be researched further and, and we need to try and unravel in what way are the Gandhari, the Parshwa and the Aratha his people. I mean, three different ethnic groups of today across three different geographical regions. How are these three ethnicities related to the same king? So that's something that me, that is an intriguing question. It needs to be investigated. But I would not say that uh, Amavasu was the founder of the Persian civilization. Maybe he was the founder of the Armenian uh, ethnicity or whatever. Perhaps. So that's something that needs to be investigated. So that's what we know for sure. And that actually raises more questions. All right. Okay, Mohan Kumar says, I watched your recent podcast with Ranveer and the questions arose were, who exactly were the Nazis? What made them kill so many Jews and gypsies? Who were the gypsies? What were concentrations, concentration camps like? That's a whole lot of questions in one. Let me try and simplify things and give, give you a brief overview. Who were the Nazis? The Nazis were the National Socialist Party of Germany. So, Germany lost World War One. Uh, they they fought this war in an alliance with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg dynasty, and the Ottoman Empire. Right, the entire business of World War One started with the assassination of Archduke uh, Frank Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand, in Sarajevo in June, I think, nineteen fourteen. Was it June or July? June nineteen fourteen. Right, and. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire blamed Serbia for this thing and they declared war on Serbia after first consulting Germany. Germany said, go ahead, go ahead, go fight them. And then Germany, after after Serbia, after the Austro-Hungarians declared war on Serbia, the Germans got involved, they declared war on France, they invaded France and uh, the Russians got involved because they were on the side of, they were in an alliance, so to say, with Serbia. The moment the Germans invaded, invaded Belgium, and then France, the British got involved. So the whole of Europe suddenly went into, into this big conflict. The Ottomans sided with the Germans. The Italians remained neutral for some time. And then they fought against the Austro-Hungarians in 892 battles on the Isonzo River. Well, not really 892, maybe more than 10 battles. It was a complete stalemate and so on. So eventually the Germans uh, lost. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was dismantled thoroughly, completely. The Ottoman Empire was dismantled completely, thoroughly. Germany lost much of its, uh, not much of its territory, maybe 10 or 20% of its territory. Poland was recreated. Germany was humiliated in the Treaty of Versailles. They were made to sign this treaty in which they had to explicitly said the state that the entire war was our fault. And they were made to pay enormous reparations, huge reparations to the, uh, to the, to the countries they fought against. So this ended in 1918, 1919, thereabouts. The 1920s was a very bad period for Germany. 
uh, they were humiliated they were beaten they were paying enormous reparations to other countries their economy had completely collapsed there was hyperinflation then the 1929 stock market crash of wall street crash happened which further affected the german economy and so on so the german people were humiliated their pride was destroyed and that gave rise to nationalism in germany also in italy because italy also felt that it gained nothing out of its of all of its efforts in world war 1 so in italy you had the rise of fascism benito mussolini in germany there was this ride of nationalism under the national socialist party called the nazis the nazi party it's an abbreviation and their leader was adolf hitler who appealed to german pride he, he promised that he would bring german pride back he would restore german pride restore german glory and make germany great again that's sort of thing right so uh so he came to power in the 1930s it was the end of the weimar republic and very quickly he became uh, uh the paramount ruler of germany the dictator of germany the führer yeah and uh, he so that's what happened now um when things go wrong you need to find someone to blame right so uh, so the nazis focused all their hatred and and singled out the uh, the jews firstly as the enemy of the nation as the enemies of the nation and there were these pogroms against the jews there was kristallnacht and and a whole lot of stuff that happened so uh, the jews were demonized they were portrayed as the uh, enemy within and again uh, lots of other people were demonized seventh day adventists and uh, the homosexuals and people with disabilities and the romani people the gypsies who were not white so the germans what they did was they stole an ethnicity the aryan ethnicity they said that the we the german the white people are the aryans they stole the ethnicity of the indo iran iranian people if any ethnic group can be called aryan today it is the indians and the iranians and no one else in the world the the so called aryan race is not a white race it's a brown race it's the brown people it's the indians and the iranians who are aryans nobody else can be called aryans but these germans the nazis they stole that that the title that that uh, ethnic self designation and they said that the white people are the aryans and they said that the jews and the romanis etc are un-aryans or non-aryans which is nonsense because because romanis should be the real aryans right in 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 uh, europe because they are of indian origin anyhow they demonized these people and eventually what happened was genocide they they ended up killing about 4 million or so jews and at least a million romanis indian origin gypsies in in various man in various ways in concentration camps uh treblinka sobibor uh, auschwitz and so many other horrific places which uh, yeah which still exist today i suppose yeah very morbid places for tourism so that's what happened it was it was tragic terrible especially the treatment of uh, yeah jews and gypsies so yeah that that in short is what happened and what were the concentration camps like well the worst place you can imagine and multiply that by 100 yeah it's it's where people went to die the people were taken to die by um, typically by by railroad uh, they used to pack these people into into railway compartments and send them by train to people uh, to places like auschwitz and sobibor etc then the people the, the jews would be taken there and uh, the ones who had specialized uh, skills would be used for, for as a slave labor the others would be just uh, gassed to death 
terrible, terrible business. So yes, that's what happened. A very horrific chapter of history. And well, yeah. So that's your answer, sir, in brief. Next question is by Yash. Is it true that many Nazi scientists were recruited by the US to work in NASA and that they were pioneers of their initial success and now whatever they are achieving is primarily due to Asian intellect, India, South Korea, China, etc. All right. So Nazi Germany, Germany. Uh, so Germany was unified for the first time in 1871 due to the efforts of uh, the great Bismarck, Chancellor Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, right? Until that time, Germany was a fragmented, uh, disunited uh, collection of, of uh, kingdoms and things like that, right? So Bismarck united Germany for the first time in 1871. And then he instituted a, instituted a series of reforms which completely transformed this new nation into a an industrial superpower. It became the engine that was driving Europe. And Germany uh, ended up uh, becoming the pioneer in all kinds of new technologies, including uh, missile technology, rocket technology, uh, and so on. And uh, it is scientists like Werner von Braun who were the pioneers of rocket technology. So Germany is the first nation that produced cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. V1 was the cruise missile that bombed London lots of times and other places in Europe as well. And V2 was the first ballistic missile, which was reasonably accurate. And so the Germans were the pioneers of cruise missile technology and rocket technology and jet engine technology. And they also had a very, very, very uh, efficient and uh, innovative military industrial complex. They were pioneers in aviation as well. They had some of the best aircraft of World War II, fighter aircraft, other aircraft, the Messerschmitts, the Stukas, the Hengels, the Focke-Wulfes, and so on and so forth, right? The British had a good aircraft, the Spitfire, and uh, the Americans had a good aircraft called the Mustang, but the Germans overall had the best uh, family of aircraft. So the Germans were incredible innovators in military technology, rocket technology, jet engine technology, and all that. When World War II ended, the Americans and the Russians were in possession of uh, roughly half and half of Germany. The Russians had taken over Berlin. They are the ones that took Berlin and that precipitated uh, Adolf Hitler's apparent alleged suicide. Yeah, Although the body has never been found, uh, apparently, we don't know. So uh, at the end of World War II, the Soviets were in possession of the eastern half, roughly, of Germany, and the Americans were in possession of the western half, roughly, of Germany. The Americans gathered as many German scientists as they could, and they were lucky to get hold of Werner von Braun. If you want to see what Mr. von Braun looked like, let me show you what there is. Let me share my screen. So what the Americans did is they captured as many German scientists uh, as they could. This is Werner von Braun. That, that's what he looked like. He was a German scientist. This is him during World War II. He was obviously a member of the Nazi party. 
and uh, the Americans captured him and a number of other German scientists. And the Americans were lucky enough to capture the cream of the German scientists. And they were taken prisoner and uh, shipped off to the United States along with captured rockets like the V2 rocket and all that. So all of this equipment and the scientists were taken to America in what is called Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip. The Russians captured whoever else they could find and those German scientists they were able to capture were taken to Russia. So the Americans took Mr. Von Braun and a number of rockets, missiles and all that. They took them to the US. Here you have Mr. Kennedy, President Kennedy with Werner Von Braun. And eventually, Werner Von Braun became the head of NASA. And he is the person that essentially developed the Saturn V rocket, which took the first human beings to the moon. That's what happened, right? So the American space program was essentially built by Nazi scientists, Nazi uh, uh, rocket scientists and engineers. And it's not just the Saturn V rocket that uh, Mr. Von Braun developed. He developed the entire uh, range of rockets that came before that. It was all done with German technology. NASA did not develop its technology from scratch. It acquired technology from the Nazis and used that and, and built upon that. The Americans have not developed their own technology. They used Nazi, Nazi technology. The Soviets also built their first rockets using Nazi technology, like the R2 rocket and so on and so forth, which eventually became a whole family of rockets that they built. So even the Russians, even the Soviets, built their space program on the back of German rocket technology. And during the period of cooperation between the USSR and China, Mao's China, the Soviets transferred rocket technology to the Chinese, which was Nazi rocket technology. So the Chinese rocket program, space program, was also built on the back of, on a foundation of Nazi technology. And then they built a whole bunch of rockets based on that technology. So the US rocket program, the US space program, the whole of NASA, the Soviet space program, and the Chinese space program were all based on technology taken from the Nazis. It's only the Indians that developed the rocket technology entirely from scratch. And maybe the Japanese as well. And maybe the French, perhaps. I'm not sure what, what, what is the history of the French rocket program, but that's what it is. So all of these nations, they acquired rocket technology, space technology from the Nazis. And the pioneer is Werner von Braun. Right? He was the... He eventually... He was a prisoner for the longest period of time for many years. He was always under surveillance. And slowly over time, he he graduated, so to say, to become the head of NASA. And eventually, yeah, so that's what it was. He still looks like a prisoner here, doesn't he? Even though he's the head of NASA. So that's how it was. So that is the story. Uh, and now whatever they're achieving, yeah, they've got so many immigrants, the, the Americans. So much of NASA, much of the these big companies, they have lots of Indian uh, Indian engineers who work there, and yeah, that's that's a known fact. So that's the story. Ujjan Chakraborty says, my question is that India or US will send 
will india or the us send army to afghanistan to throw away the taliban regime from there and build bring back the old original democratic government see the americans withdrew from afghanistan the americans were in power they well they were in they occupied afghanistan for roughly 20 years uh from 2001 until 2021 20 years and they chose to leave the country and they chose to hand over power to the taliban so why would they go back and and uh, remove the taliban when they put the, they installed the taliban in the first place so there is no chance of america doing any such thing secondly india why should india get involved in this matter what does india stand to gain how does it uh, further india's national interest by sending our army there and fighting the taliban what do we gain from that and isn't it risky to send our army to a place where we don't have a direct land route as of today, as of today so it doesn't make any sense strategically or from the national interest perspective for india to get involved and and uh, try to overthrow the taliban we can do it if we wish to but why would we do it we have reasonably good relations with taliban with, with the taliban and uh, we have a common enemy with the taliban so why would we would we want to fight them for democracy what democracy which democracy are you under the illusion that uh, the government that was in power in afghanistan for the past 20 years was a democratic government it was a puppet regime placed there by the united states when a foreign occupying power holds elections those elections are not free and fair those are staged elections when a foreign power comes and occupies your country militarily and then holds elections there do you consider that to be free and fair elections are free and fair only when there is no foreign interference so the government that was in power in afghanistan for 20 or so years whether it was under under mr ashraf ghani or or mr karzai whoever it was these were puppet regimes there was no democracy there these were deeply corrupt regimes incredible amounts of us money flowed into afghanistan for building roads and infrastructure and schools and all that where are those roads and infrastructure and schools where where is where is all that where are all those schools where are all those roads where is all the infrastructure what happened to all the money that money was actually used to buy politicians and keep them appeased deeply corrupt regimes okay the taliban actually may may represent the will of more afghans than the than those puppet regimes there was this uh, pew poll pew survey or whatever which said that uh, the majority of the afghan population wants sharia law and all that which is what the taliban gives them now obviously the pew polls ca- cannot be taken without a few grains of salt but that's what it is So I think the Taliban actually represents the the will and the wishes of more Afghans than not and certainly it represents Afghanistan more accurately than the when than the puppet regimes that the Americans had installed there and India and the Taliban have a good understanding and we have a common adversary so there is no reason why would India would get involved and try to overthrow the Taliban why would we do it what do we get, get, stand, stand to gain from this democracy what democracy democracy is an illusion my friends
okay, keep, this is by Vamsi. Why France is another Russia to India? We people hate the West, na? Uh, what's your views on France and what's the difference between West and France? Why France is against world big brother interest and why Germany and France are not happy with the US interest? Okay, 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 okay. No one hates the West. I don't hate the West. I've lived in the West. With the, there, is, there is so much to learn from the West. I have absolutely nothing against the people of the West. But yes, the West is a force of, of that has caused an enormous amount of harm to the world. It has destroyed Africa. It has destroyed Asia. And so on. So we are, we will not go get into that. Now, what's the the question is why is France another Russia to India? Well, France is not another Russia to India. But yes, okay. The other question is what's the difference between the West and France? There is no difference between the West and France. France is very much part of the West. France too has been a major colonial power. France too has indulged in a great deal of destruction, especially in Africa. So you can't absolve France of all of that. France in, uh, France uh, instituted slavery in the West Indies uh, and so on. So France has a very dark history. It still interferes greatly in Africa, in the internal matters of African countries, in North Africa and, uh, and so on, uh, the sub-Saharan region and, and so on and so forth. So France is very much part of the West. It is culturally and geographically part of the West. It is part of the European Union, an integral part of the European Union, which is essentially a, a bunch of nations that is dominated by the US. France is also part of NATO, which is again a bunch of vassal states of the US. The EU is a large bunch of American vassal states. NATO is a smaller group of nations that are US vassal states. right? But among all of these nations, France is the only nation that has a reasonably independent foreign policy. It decides, it makes its own decisions, which are not uh, influenced by, by American interests. And that's why there is a great deal of friction between France and the US from time to time to time. It keeps happening. And there are calls within France for France leaving NATO, that France should leave NATO. And uh, yeah, that's the relationship. That is the fraught relationship France has with the US. It's the only nation in the EU and NATO that has an independent foreign policy. That is not completely under the heel, under the boot of the US. And France has excellent relations with India. France was the only major Western power that did not condemn the 1998 Indian nuclear tests. And France and India have what you could call a strategic relationship today, a strategic and military relationship. Excellent relations. Uh, our interests converge in a great number of matters. And there's a great deal of cooperation on military front, on the military front and, and other fronts as well, on in diplomacy and uh, a great deal of convergence in geopolitics as well. So, yeah, in that sense, France could be considered to be in some ways, in, in some ways, kind of like Russia, but not really like Russia. So uh, that's that's the situation. Germany and France are not happy with the US interest. Well, Germany has no choice. Germany is under permanent US military occupation. Uh, so Germany has no option. It is it is a, a fully uh, colonized state, state, so to say. Uh, it doesn't have an, uh, an independent foreign policy or an independent internal policy either. Germany is the U.S. colony. It's, U, it's a U.S. vassal state. Not a colony, a vassal state. Uh, 
France is not. So that's that's what the situation is. And obviously, uh, at the ground level, people will not be happy about this. People can see what's happening, especially when you're living in that country, that there is no actual autonomy. Your leaders are all subservient to the American interest. So people can see it. And that's why people are not happy with that. But at least in France, there is independence of foreign policy and internet policy. And that's why there is friction between the France and the US. The recent AUK-US deal, the French uh, had signed a deal with the Australians to supply a number of Scorpion submarines to Australia. The deal was signed. It was a done deal. And then the Australians walked out of it because the Americans arm-twisted them into walking out of it. So that brought in a great deal of friction between France and the US and Australia. And that's something that is a pattern that keeps continuing. So that is the situation overall. And India and France have very good relations. Anish says, can Japan, Germany and other countries which are under US occupation or influence ever rebel against it? Do the governments or the people of these countries even want to be free from this hegemony? What can be the repercussions of such a collective rebellion against the US? These countries are in no position to rebel against the US. Japan is under heavy US military occupation. If there is a rebellion, it will be crushed in an instant. But the US is in full control of Japan. The Japan Japanese constitution was written in 1945 or thereabouts by Americans. It's never been changed. Not a single word has been changed in the past 70 plus years. The US has dozens of military bases in Japan, including major bases. I suppose there could be nuclear weapons. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. So the Japanese are com- in, un- completely under the under American control and occupation. There is no chance of them rebelling against that. And it, I mean, the Americans would have planned in 1945 itself how to deal with a potential rebellion. And as they took more and more control of the country, it, it, that, that became an impossibility. The only way this could end is if U.S. influence wanes and the U.S. declines so much that they have to withdraw from Japan. The way the Romans had to withdraw from the British islands a long time ago. Yeah. So the, so the Japanese have no chance of rebelling. If they try, they will be crushed immediately. And it won't be it won't even appear in the media. <laughs> That's what will happen. Um, Germany again has no chance. Germany is under the entirety of Western Europe is under US control essentially, apart from France. So uh and uh, the U.S. has military uh, has nuclear weapons in, in places like the Netherlands and Belgium, even in Turkey. They have military bases everywhere, permanent bases in, in, in Germany, in Italy. I suppose there could be bases in, in Spain also. The Americans have complete control of the U.K. as well, and so on. So uh, the only situation, scenario in which this hegemony and occupation will end is if the U.S. declines like the Roman Empire did. And when the Roman Empire declined, they had to withdraw from the British islands and other places. And that's how these people, these places became free again. So that is one scenario in which uh, these people could be free from U.S. hegemony. Now, U.S. hegemony may not be a bad thing for Europe. Europe has historically been a, a place of deep ethnic divides, deep ethnic hatreds and constant war. 
the past 70 years of relative peace after world war 2 have been because of pax americana because the americans were the dominant power in western europe and they were counterbalancing the ussr and after the decline and, and dissolution of the ussr it was nato that was expanding and it is the american influence that kept the region stable and kept war at bay except for things like the 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 breakup of the of yugoslavia which the americans engineered and so on and so forth so when they want war they will do it but overall there's been peace until now in europe since 1945 because of the american influence so if the americans leave these countries will again go to war they have old scores to settle against each other which won't be a nice thing so that's where we are that's what the history is and that's what could happen okay a couple of questions one is by vaibhav the us has offered to develop amca jet engine together which they denied previously currently drdo is in talks with safran what do you think the us will why what do you think us take 180 degrees turn do we go with uh, france safran abhimanyu says i recently read us offering india to jointly manufacture jet engine for our amca uh, amca is uh, the the fifth generation jet fighter that india is currently developing so why making and manufacturing jet engines is so difficult for india especially when considered that india already has cryogenic engines and indigenously developed missile launcher systems okay let's deal with the second question first why is it so hard to build to manufacture jet engines because it's a very difficult technology only a handful of countries have mastered it and that process has taken decades decades seven or so decades the british have the rolls royce engines the americans have the general electric engines the french have the snecma or safran engines the chinese uh, the russians have their own saturn and other engines turbo turbofan and all that all those engines and the chinese are trying to develop reasonably good engine the w whatever series of engines they are not quite successful thus far but they are making significant strides in the right direction it takes a huge amount of uh, research and development and trial and error and iterative progress to develop a good jet engine it's a very long difficult process and the reason for that is that jet engines are very complicated uh, machines extremely high temperatures which would melt most metals and yet you need the turbofan to to withstand those temperatures and not disintegrate that's why many i mean for instance we had the fox bat uh mig 25 was it the fox bat which could uh, travel at at mark 2 or higher at very high altitudes if you took it to its maximum speed it would fly but when it comes back and lands you would have to replace the engines because they would be ruined by that time that's how it was so jet engines are they they operate at very high temperatures at very high stresses and uh, that's why it's so difficult to build them you need to come up with with exotic materials composite met- composite materials or you need to build those jet en- jet engine turbine blades out of a single crystal of metal which is technology that most countries can't even imagine bu- having right so that's why it is so difficult the americans have been uh, developing their jet engines the general electric engines for for decades and so on so and the same goes for the uk and the russians and the french the chinese are still trying to catch up they are still at least a generation behind the top nations and <laughs> in india we have uh, 
we we have drdo and it has a lab in bangalore i believe which which uh, does research with jet engines we have a cavalry engine which is not quite right for our fighter aircraft the amount of thrust it produces is approximately 70 or so kilonewtons uh, we for for the for a fighter plane we would need at least 90 kilonewtons or so and for something like the amca or the twin engine deck based fighter etc you would need very powerful jet engines with a thrust of about 125 or so kilonewtons or, or thereabouts so that's the kind of output we not we need and uh, the cavalry engine hasn't been able to achieve that output so india has now decided that uh, for the amca advanced medium combat aircraft the fifth engine fighter we are building the initial mark 1 model of the of this plane will have general electric american engines so that in the mark 2 will have indian engines so then for that we need to develop an indian engine and for that we need a foreign cooperation maybe transfer of technology whatever it doesn't matter pay the money get the te- technology and then take it forward so india is considering an offer from france safran and also nowadays like yeah, like you say the americans have uh, have made an offer of developing uh, the technology jointly so i believe the technology they are offering is uh, will will give us a jet engine that has uh, an which which has an output of about 110 kilonewtons or something but i think we need 125 ideally so let's see how it goes i would say that india should go with the french because the french are more trustworthy the americans have don't have a very good track record when it comes to cooperation with india so one has to be careful you're investing good money and uh, we don't want to lose that and we need the technology as soon as possible so i i would prefer i mean at the end of the day it's for the government to make their co- make a choice make make a call they know better than us they will know information that we don't have but my gut feeling is that france would be a better choice for india so let's see what happens okay siddhant says recently heard news that india will give lca tejas to egypt what will be the reaction of israel on this how will india manage weapon deal and good friends like israel okay right so israel is not a friend israel is a nation with which we have very good relations because we have shared interests common interests there are no friends or enemies in geopolitics there are temporary alliances and temporary adversaries and things can change but you have certain nations with which you have long term shared interests and israel is is one of those nations along with nations like france and russia etc so the news is that india say india is not giving anything to anyone we are not giving anything we will be selling if if the deal happens we will we will be selling something to them we are not giving it it's not a gift So there are two nations that are interested as of today in the LCA Tejas. One is Malaysia. The Malaysians, I don't know how many uh, jet aircraft they need, maybe twenty or so, roughly. If I, correct me if I'm wrong. So they need this aircraft, and uh, they have. Uh, I think the LCA Tejas may be the front runner that they are considering. So most likely they will go with the LCA Tejas. Uh, so I think a Malaysian uh, delegation is going to visit, visit India very soon. to see the production facilities and and uh, take a look at the, how the aircraft is and maybe test it out or whatever so whatever they will have to do they will do it and uh, 
so the lca tejas is a front runner when it comes to malaysia the tejas has a very good advantage it's a very light aircraft it's a very capable aircraft and it's a very cheap aircraft it uh, the cost per per unit is about 42 million dollars which is among the cheapest in the world and it's a very good aircraft so lots of countries are interested so the malaysians could likely acquire this plane from india which is good and india has also offered this to egypt the egyptians need many more i don't know maybe 80 or so so what india has offered is that we have offered egypt we have offered to to build a production plant in egypt itself so we will create a whole production line in egypt and the planes will be built there and from there they can the, the they can be built for the egyptian requirements maybe 70 80 whatever they need and then more can be can be manufactured and sold to other countries in the middle east north africa region and many countries would be interested because it's a very capable and cheap aircraft many uh, north african countries need fighter aircraft for their requirements and maybe some middle eastern countries as well and uh, the american planes etc are very expensive so they may want to go with the lc tejas so india is offering to build an entire pr- production plant in egypt and india i believe is also offering a variety of helicopters to egypt so we have the uh, the light combat helicopter which is a very capable helicopter it's uh, it can fly at very high altitudes in in siachen etc it can also fly in extremely hot environments like in the thar desert in rajasthan so it's a brilliant very good helicopter and we are offering that to egypt along with the advanced light helicopter and some other aerial platforms so that's what is happening right now and let's see how that goes forward uh what about israel well israel will not be happy with this only if this deal threatens israel's national interest and that is not the case israel has had a very good relationship with egypt for the past several decades uh and of course we would uh, not do anything that w- that would uh, be perceived as as uh, something negative by israel for sure because we value the the relationship that we have with, with israel so whatever deal is reached it will not be so these aircraft or these weapons systems will not be sold to any countries that have an adversarial relationship with israel egypt is not one of these nations egypt has a very reasonably good relationship with israel and israel is now uh, so now we, we have diplomatic relations opening up with between israel and various gulf countries as well uh, including the uae and maybe even the saudi arabians so things are changing in the middle east after the abraham accords that uh, president trump uh, presided over and all so on so things are different now and it's a good thing for the middle east it's been under under strife for so long and things may change so that's what the situation is the malaysians could likely acquire the lca tejas maybe 20 or so and the if the egyptians uh, take the deal then they they, they could set, set up their own faci- production facility over there so it's it's a, these are very good developments when it comes to indian um, defense manufacturing because we are now in a position to actually sell these uh weapon systems and aircraft etc to other countries and uh, many countries are also expressing an interest in acquiring missiles from india like the brahmos for instance so great developments very positive developments 
Okay, Rio says, please shed some light on Queen Mary the First. Before she ascended to the throne of England, the national religion of England was Protestantism. But as soon as she became the queen, she reinstalled Catholicism as the national religion. To set an example to her people who were questioning her decision and to make them behave, she burned hundreds of Protestant heretics at the stake. Western scholars are very hasty when it comes to pointing out how apparently regressive and discriminatory Indian caste system was, etc., but blatantly turn a blind eye against their own religion, which is Christianity, Catholicism, and Protestant always being in conflict, and so on, and going to wars, going on wars and crusades against one another. Uh, this is an interesting chapter of history. So, who was Queen Mary the uh, First? So, let's go back one generation. The father of Queen Mary the First was Henry the Eighth, who ruled in the first half of the 16th century, from around 1510 to about 1550, thereabouts. So Henry the Eighth was one of the one of the most important kings of England. His father was the essentially the founder of the of the of the Tudor dynasty. He defeated uh, Robert the Third, I believe, in the Battle of. Uh, I forget what the name of the battle is. Look it up. <laughs> right? That's not important. So Henry VIII was a guy who had many wives. And uh, he is an important, very important figure in, in English history. He had three very famous officials. Thomas Wosley, the bishop, who was the high chancellor of England. Thomas More, who was also the high chancellor of England. And Thomas Cromwell, who was the chief minister. And uh, Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell were beheaded on the orders of the king. And Thomas Wolsey was also under, uh, he was also accused of treason, but before he could be beheaded, he died of natural causes. And uh, Henry married multiple wives. His first wife was Catherine of Aragon, who was from Spain. Then uh, he wanted, he, he fell in love with a lady called Anne Boleyn, and he wanted to marry her, but he needed a divorce from his first wife. So he asked his chancellor, uh, Thomas Wosley to go to the Vatican and uh, meet the Pope and acquire approval for a divorce, which Thomas Wosley was unable to do. And that's why he was accused of treason. Eventually, uh, what happened is that Henry VIII fell out with the Vatican and he broke ties with the Vatican and made Protestantism the uh, official um, state religion of England and uh, he broke with the Vatican and the Anglican Church was formed as a result of this which is still the, the official I mean the official church or whatever it is of England uh, so he then married Anne Boleyn with, with his first wife Catherine of Aragon he had a child who was Mary the first Mary with Anne Boleyn he had another child which was Elizabeth then he married a couple of other ladies. So Anne Boleyn was beheaded for whatever reason. And another wife was also beheaded. Then he also married a lady called Jane Seymour, who, who, who had a son called Edward and so on. So after Henry VIII died, first of all, this guy called Edward, his son, he came to power. He ruled for about five or six years before he died. So after Edward died, Mary the daughter of Catherine of Aragon became the Queen of England. She ruled for about five or so years. Catherine of Aragon was a Catholic. Henry was uh, had adopted Protestantism or whatever you call it as the official religion. So when Mary, Mary came to power, 
Uh, she, I think she was upset with her father because he had ill-treated her mom, Catherine of Aragon. So Mary reversed her father's policies. She reinstated the Catholic religion as the official religion of England. And then she went on a rampage. And uh, like you said, she she burned lots of people at the stake. And uh, that was a brutal period in, in, in English history. So Mary ruled for about five or so years. She did not have any children. And eventually she died of ill health. She was called Bloody Mary. That's how bad she was. Right? And after she died, her half-sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, became the Queen of England in 1558, 1560, thereabouts. She ruled for about 45 or 50 years. And that was the Elizabethan age or the golden age of England. And Elizabeth again brought back the Protestant uh, religion and uh, uh, her rule was very enlightened. England became very stable and it started uh, progressing. Science was allowed to prosper. Um, and there was a lot of scientific development at the time. At the fag end of her rule, of Elizabeth's rule, the East India Company was formed in 1600. And in 1608, it reached India in Surat and so on. So that is the story in brief. So, so this lady, J, uh, what's her name? Uh, Queen Mary. She was a terrible ruler. She did all kinds of atrocities on the Protestants. And that is something that is completely overlooked by Western historians. Their, uh, their history is bloody. It is brutal. Uh, the, the Middle Ages of, of, of Europe were horrible. Hundreds of thousands of women were burned at the stake, burned alive as witches, just to keep women under control. Um, and so on. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a horrible, horrific history. And it's completely whitewashed out of... Out of uh, the history textbooks, and it's always the East that is uh, that is uh, portrayed as regressive and barbaric and primitive, which when actually the reverse is is true. So yeah, that is the hypocrisy of the West, and that's what we need to push back against. Lakshya says, "What factors led to the fall of the Roman Empire, and how is the study of what caused the decline of empires civilizations relevant even today? All civilizations." Rise and fall. It's a cycle. It's a cyclic event. They come, the rise and the fall. Civilizations and empires are different. So the, so the Roman Empire was not, was not a civilization. It was an empire. So it rose because of great men. Uh, men like uh, Scipio Africanus. Men like Pompey the Great. Men like Julius Caesar. Augustus, Mark Anthony, uh, Marcus Aurelius, great men, great emperors, great conquerors. That's, that's how the empire rose from nothingness. Uh, so it was an empire that was built upon conquest. And it was vigorous and active and alive as long as it was conquering. Conquering in various directions in Europe, in North Africa, and in the Mediterranean, in the Eastern Mediterranean region, present-day Lebanon and, and Israel and Judea, all that, right? Parts of the Arabian regions as well, Syria, Jordan, and so on and so forth, Anatolia, all of that. So it was an empire built on conquest. Now, as the empire became larger and larger, the mode shifted from conquest to administration and bureaucracy. Now, when an empire goes into bureaucratic mo mode, it becomes, well, it becomes less vigorous. It becomes more politicized. So, and, and as it expands, 
there is uh, it becomes more difficult to coordinate everything especially in an age 2000 years before today roughly when you did not have the communications technology that we have today so you could not instantaneously coordinate what was happening you may have a battle or or a rebellion happening in judea and the the emperor who is sitting in rome will not come to know about what happened for weeks on end and then how do you relay your relay orders to the, to to the commander over there these are all big problems that they used to face so in what happened is that you had these various governors of various provinces who would essentially rule autonomously they were like kings in their own right they had their own legions of soldiers and that would cause problems as well and after some time after some centuries you had lots of emperors that came and went very very uh weak emperors uh so that was that's what happens even initially uh, an empire rises because of great men great vigorous conquerors then there is this phase of bureaucracy and politics and that's what eventually le- leads to the downfall as the empire becomes more prosperous and the wealth increases people become more uh le- people lose their appetite for hardship you know what they say right hard times give rise to strong men strong men give rise to good times good rise give good times give rise to weak men soft men and which again build, brings on hard times and all that so that's a cycle so that's how the roman empire fell that's how all empires rise and fall that's the same thing happened to the ottoman empire the same thing happened to the mongol empire and so on various indian empires as well the mauryan empire the the gupta empire the the uh, kushan empire the chola empire and so on it's a cyclical process so that's what happened to rome and if you understand these cycles of history these patterns of history then you can actually predict, predict what's going to happen so you had the soviet empire you call it a superpower it was an empire it was about uh, it controlled a significant portion of the world that also rose rapidly and fell that's what happened and uh, right now we have the anglo-saxon empire which which began began with the east india company and it's still in force in the form of the us well uh the us hegemony in many parts of the world so that may also decline someday everything rises and falls as part of a large cyclical process so okay rtk says can india become a superpower without gaining back its cultural identity let me give you a historical example you had something called the byzantine empire a superpower is an empire please understand that it's the same thing in the 21st century anyone in the 20th century we don't use the word empire that's a bad word so use a different word use the word superpower it's the same thing a superpower is an empire so we had something called the byzantine empire which was the eastern roman empire its capital city was constantinople or byzantium where is it do you know where it is i hope you do otherwise i'll show you let me show you where constantinople was where is google maps we were looking at india let's go east uh, let's go westwards so byzantium or constantinople which is now known as istanbul is over here it's at the crossroads between asia and europe right the strait of bosphorus so this is byzantium it's now known as istanbul so this was the capital of the eastern roman empire or the or the byzantine empire and this empire was in force for more than a thousand years 
then what happened then the turks started encroaching on on byzantine territory and by 1453 or whatever the date is look it up right i don't remember all the dates uh, so eventually sultan mehmed the second conquered constantinople right and they called it constantinie in turkish and that was the birth of the ottoman empire and then you had other sultans who were greater than mehmed and it, it all culminated with uh, with suleiman the magnificent so they built the ottoman empire out of the byzantine empire and they called themselves kaiser rum which means this is the caesar of rome so they they considered themselves to be uh emperors who continued the byzantine empire at least that was the claim that they, their empire was a continuation of the byzantine empire so what happened here is that the ottoman empire or, or this region anatolia became a superpower without with a completely new cultural identity a turkish islamic identity it was a eastern roman christian empire which transformed which was transformed into a turkic turkish islamic caliphate that's what happened to the byzantine empire it it transmogrified into the ottoman empire so the answer is yes a country can become a superpower in a completely new cultural identity and therefore the answer to this question is india can become a superpower without ever gaining back its cultural identity in the future you may have a completely different kind of india which is a superpower maybe by 2100 we may have a different kind of india with a totally different cultural identity and it may be a superpower it is a possibility yes okay anvai sharma says what's your opinion on the kali kilo ampere linear injector weapon system developed by by us in 2016 our then our then defense minister mr manohar parikar refused to answer grievances about kali can it mean that this system has been deployed uh, in various places or is it still under development is it only land based or is it in planes or in space or in aircraft and ships etc joy makali joy makali uh there is absolutely no information available in the public domain about this whatever this is uh the name is kilo ampere linear injector that uh, that kind of uh, reminds me of um, uh, something like a linear collider or something right and if it is kilo ampere that's a very small voltage uh if if you consider machines like tokamax you have giga ampere uh, energy in there so kilo ampere is like is way underpowered of course this is something that the the project may have begun 20 30 years ago so at that time kilo amperes must have been a very high amount of power for that time so i don't know what the situation is what the status is if it still exists if it doesn't exist i have no idea because there is absolutely no information available in the public domain the government has made no statements it has released no information so maybe this is a very highly classified project uh, or maybe it's it's just something that was used for experimental purposes and maybe it doesn't exist anymore the name is very nice kali so that kind of grabs public imagination 
and it has very interesting uh, connotations yeah because of the goddess but yeah we don't know i personally don't have any information about what the status is if it is still operational if it has gone to a new level if it is an actual weapon or whatever we don't know what it is it could be that it's, it's some kind of weapon maybe a laser kind of thing or whatever but we don't have information in the public domain and therefore that's why i am not able to give you any specific answer no idea whatsoever but if it is being developed that's a good thing i hope it is but we don't have any uh, information bra bra says what is the strategy of euro asianism eurasianism okay what are your views on alexander dugin's multipolarity where he proposes north south coordination north america south america europe africa russia india japan south east asia under against unipolar american structure do you think this is just another feel good idea like communism or india could present much more practicality in the system eurasianism is the idea of a russian okay so according to this idea of eurasianism it's about russia it says its core principle or tenet is that russia is not a western uh country it's about um, it's about russia becoming an empire so russia is neither east nor west that's what eurasianism says that is the core principle or tenet of eurasianism that russia is neither a western entity or an eastern entity it's somewhere in between it is definitely not western it's eurasian and it also says that russia should uh, become a eurasian empire uh which is located obviously in in northern eurasia the northern half of eurasia and it would also say that uh, russia would need access to warm water ports maybe in the mediterranean maybe in the indian ocean region wherever it can maybe that would that would uh, uh for that they would need to conquer perhaps iran or something like that you know that's the kind of thing it is now when it comes to alexander dugin's uh, multipolarity uh north south cooperation north america south Co- america makes no sense because north america is the us and south america is totally under us hegemony makes no sense there europe africa has a master slave relationship europe is the colonizer africa is still colonized so it again makes no sense of them cooperating when they have this very very uh colonial relationship Russia India makes a lot of sense Japan Southeast Asia Japan and Southeast Asia don't have very good history and Japan is right now a US vassal state so it makes no sense so the only cooperation that makes sense in all of these examples you've given is Russia India because India and Russia have no uh, shared border they have no adversarial adversarial relationship they have no grounds for having any enmity and there are lots and lots of areas in which russia and india can cooperate and work together so russia and india are actually natural allies so yeah when it comes to russia india cooperation it makes sense it makes sense and multipolarity also makes sense so uh, so in this uh, world view russia would not be a global hegemon but it, it would be a major empire uh, in in eurasia stretching apparently from dublin to vladivostok dublin ireland to vladivostok in the far east of russia and there would be cooperation with major powers possibly like india 
possibly like China. China obviously is a long-term threat to Russia. So that cooperation would be issue-based and conditional and in the time, uh, uh, not long-term cooperation. So that's how it is. So that is the great Russian dream, one could say. And Alexander Dugin is is a geostrategist. He's a philosopher of some kind, apparently. They call him a philosopher. And he's a Russian nationalist. He is a traditionalist, a conservative. Uh, and he he is somebody who believes in the recreation of, of a Russian of a great Russian empire. So that's that's the that's the deal with Alexander Dugin. Do you think this is just another feel-good idea like communism? It's not an ideology like communism. It's it's a stated end goal for Russia. Uh, so yeah, it could be something that the Russians may be working towards. Let's is it practical right now? It is it is still in the realm of dreams and fantasy, but who knows? Everything starts with dreams and fantasies. It can be achieved practically. Things like that can happen, especially with technology in the 21st century. So it is a distant possibility, a distant dream, but it is not impractical. It's not a feel-good idea. It is something the Russians, possibly Mr. Putin also, would want to achieve. So that's what Eurasianism is. I've noticed that in most parts of the world nowadays, the youth idolize and look look up to Hollywood, actors, actresses, entertainers, comedians, cricket players, and so on, instead of real heroes, like people that have actually had a genuine impact on humanity, like scientists, historical figures, and freedom fighters, but who do, who we choose to emulate has a huge impact on our morals and behavior. How do you think this is influencing us? And is it cause for some of the bad things that are happening in society? Definitely. Who you... Uh, who you the kind of people you hold as role models is going to shape the kind of society you have. A society that idolizes entertainers is going to be a very, very, um, it's not going to be a good society. And this is something that, that's a, a phenomenon that has come out of the uh, um, post-World War II period of world history. So a period of US hegemony and uh, Hollywood became a very big propaganda machine for the U.S. And uh, even in U.S. society, people look up to entertainers as, as role models. Entertainers are simply people who are paid to pretend to be something that they are not. And it's so easy for people to be fooled by them. So for instance, in India, there are certain Bollywood actors who portray, who play various roles. There is this one Bollywood actor whom I will not name. He had a number of movies in which he, which were like patriotic movies, you know, in which it was about about uh, showing India in a good light and and patriotism and all that. So people started believing this guy is a great patriot. I mean, how silly is that? And then he came came up with some movies that were totally like the opposite of that. So that um, woke people up. But again, they will be fooled again in a few in a few when a few new movies come out. So people who, uh, a society that idolizes entertainers is a society that is doomed. The Romans had a very clear rule, keep entertainers far away from society and tax them heavily. And the same was the rule of uh, that uh, Vishnu Gupta Chanakya sp spoke about, I believe in his book, the Arthashastra. 
entertainers need to be heavily taxed and they should not be allowed to mingle too deeply with society. They should be on the margins of society. I am not saying these are bad people. I am not against entertainers. I am not against actors and actresses. They are also people, many of them could be good. But a society that idolizes entertainers is a society that is doomed. So that's where we are today. That's the effect of the Anglo-Saxon Empire on the world. That we have the wrong role models. And the people who deserve to be role models never get any visibility. So that is a big problem. In the past, it was not the case. In the past, you had a proper society in India and other places as well. So yeah, that's that's one of the major problems of the 21st century. The wrong kind of influence. Anybody can become an influencer nowadays on 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 uh, what are the platforms? Instagram, TikTok is thankfully no longer available in India, but anyone can become Insta famous. You go and do some dance or something on Instagram, and you become famous, and people start following you, and everybody wants to be like you. This is not a good thing for for society. It 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 uh, teaches the wrong lessons and the wrong values. So Laksha is right. Even cricketers, I mean, <laughs> it's 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 not a bad thing to succeed as a sports person. But once again, uh, the thing is, when you admire a person's success, you try to admire everything else about the person. Now, a cricketer is a young man or woman who has achieved a certain amount of success in sport. It doesn't mean that they're right about everything in the world. There are so many of these idiotic cricketers, woke cricketers, former captains and all, who who uh, espouse the wrong ideas. And uh, yeah, so it's a problem. So yeah, this is indeed a problem. And I don't know what the solution is right now. But that's something that we are going through right now. The entire world is going through this. Because of the power of social media, the power of propaganda, and the power of the entertainment industry. Okay, Ramalakshmi says, can you please say something about India's mango diplomacy, which was which was used before? I saw in an article, are there more types to it, like what China uses wolf for a diplomacy? So when they speak about mango diplomacy, it's about India giving mangoes as gifts to various world leaders. That is not diplomacy. So in the past, India used to send crates of mangoes to various world leaders, to ambassadors, to presidents, prime ministers, etc. to please them. Uh, that is not a diplomatic strategy, but that's what India, India used to do. So that's all I can say about it. That's all it is. It is not some great strategy or anything. It's about giving gifts and trying to please people. That's not how we play diplomacy. That's not, that's not how the game is played. The game, diplomacy is a substitute for warfare. That's what it is. You negotiate, you bully, you nego- you, you try and extract concessions. You do everything short of going to war. That is diplomacy. And of course, you, you enter into alliances, you negotiate the terms of the alliance and all that. That all is diplomacy. You, you put your views forth, you make your position known to the world, you know, you engage with the media. All that is diplomacy. Giving mangoes as gifts is not diplomacy. But that's what India's foreign affairs establishment used to do. And thankfully, all that nonsense is over. Uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy, well, that's just aggressive behavior. That's what it is. So the Chinese foreign 
foreign affairs establishment was used to be very conciliatory very meek they used to swallow all the insults the americans used to throw at them for the longest time uh their their leader deng shopping had a very famous maxim which says that uh, bide your time hide your capabilities and work very hard and when the time comes you can do what you want so the chinese followed that maxim for a longer for the longest time it's only in 2012 onwards that their entire posture st- posture changed and they became very aggressive and that's when the diplomats changed their tune and they became uh, hyper aggressive in their in their pronouncements in their statements in their style of engaging with other, other countries so that's what is called wolf warrior diplomacy so that's that that is meant that is supposed to reflect the newfound confidence of the of the chinese nation which may sometimes backfire or whatever but that's the policy and the strategy that they are using well let's see how that goes so this mango diplomacy was a waste of time complete waste of time it it <laughs> i mean what was the point so that's what it was okay couple more questions hopefully Pratik says, "I just completed the twelfth. I naturally was inclined towards consumer behavior. I knew how people like you, business people, politicians, influence choices, and I wanted to do business psychology course, but there isn't a single college for in India for it. Why is business psychology's importance still not, still very much unconquered in India? Psychology is very important, whether it's business psychology or whatever. Whether you are in sales or marketing or entrepreneurship or or negotiation or business." whether you're a politician a world leader or diplomat whatever it is you need to understand psychology even if you just want to have a regular 9 to 5 job and career and rise up the corporate ladder etc you need to understand psychology it's very important and the indian education system is obsolete it is it is like still mired in the 1970s so obviously there will be no courses about business psychology in india the good thing is you understand this very few people understand that so learn it on your own you don't need a degree to learn something all the information you need is available online for free if you know where to look there could be entire youtube courses you know uh, many of these foreign universities uni- us universities etc have have open courseware in which they put up entire semesters worth of lectures on youtube for free proper coursework academic coursework you could go through that i'm sure there are business psychology courses in that and there could be other youtube uh, playlists or whatever on various channels which could deal with this in in a different way there could be entire pdfs and texts available on various websites so look it up all the information is available go and grab it learn this and apply it in your life and it's not just for pratik but for everybody who's watching it psychology is the knowledge of psychology human psychology is is very important if you want to succeed in life uh for instance politicians they have an intuiting it, intuitive understanding of human psychology mass psychology it's essential for their survival and for their success if you're an army commander you need to understand psychology human psychology mass psychology what motivates people what drives people what what are the things that that uh, acts as as a deterrent for certain kinds of behavior and so on and so forth right so psychology is very important and in if you want to go into business and you want to understand con- consumer behavior as a, as a marketer or a sales person or as a pro- pro- product designer 
strategist, whatever, you need to understand human psychology, business psychology, mass psychology and all that. So it's a very interesting field. You understand it well. You have a significant advantage of over your peers. So I would uh, recommend that go ahead, learn it on your own. It doesn't matter that there are no courses available in Indian colleges. Who cares? Learn it for free. Yeah, go ahead. All the best. Okay, this is a longer thing. Uh, Iftikhar Khan says, India was the richest and therefore strongest before the Judeo-Christians arrived. We all know the rich West dominates the world any way it wants. It was in fact the Judeo-Christian West that through centuries of crusades, slavery, invasions and colonization that they massacred and plundered, etc. others to accumulate trillions and build their empire that oppresses all others from growing. Subsequently, through this plundering, they destroyed many, including India. Economists clearly know that they looted 45 trillion USD from India after massacring at least 100 million Indians and breaking it into three, thus weakening India like no other. In the process, they enslaved Indian minds, for which some believe that the English language is a blessing. Well, I'm glad you understand this. More and more people are now beginning to understand this and beginning to realize what really has happened. The English language is not a boon or a blessing to India. It is a curse that needs to be removed. They today portray themselves as the, as the, as the defenders of human rights and democracy when they are the ones that have undermined human rights and democracy the most in the world. They speak about equality. They are the worst oppressors, the worst opponents of equality when it comes to, I mean, we know what the truth is. So we need to educate ourselves about this. We need to understand what really happened, the true history of the world, what the West has really done. They are the ones that have destroyed the rest of the world, the Americas, Africa, and Asia. The East needs to rise again whether together or separately is, is is it remains to be seen and like-minded nations should come together and work together and we will rise again and i would like india to rise again very much i think it's india's destiny to rise again to its rightful place in the world and i, I don't think anybody will be able to stop this so yeah so i'm glad people are realizing this and uh, whatever you've said is absolutely right Okay, let's take a couple of maybe uh, live chat questions, if anybody has live chat questions. If you have any questions, let me know right now, put them in the chat and I will take a look at that and hopefully take a few of those. Uh, what do we have? What is, are your thoughts about the Ghatak UCAV project? Did I, did I not just speak about that? I answered that. The DRDO Ghatak project, it, it is something that is currently being developed. We have tested a scaled down version of it. It has worked well and now we will take it forward. It's a good thing. All right, what next? What else do we have? Um... Uh, If Pakistan splits, which parts will be favorable to India? If it splits, all parts will be favorable to India and favorably inclined to India, provided we play our cards right. Um, uh, 
will india ever be equal to china in terms of gdp india will eventually exceed the gdp of china over time it won't happen tomorrow next week next year in the next by 2050 it could happen it is a possibility by 2100 definitely india will be number one but yeah i know that's that's too far away and we want it now but <laughs> it's all about patience listen we we have to we have to realize we are a civilization and we are a small we are small links in the long chain we have to think in terms of centuries and we have to all play our part india will be number one again but it will take time it will take time okay some other con- some other questions did pashtuns really want to join india khan abdul ghafar khan when he returned told congress that they had left them to the wolves wolves yes khan abdul ghafar khan wanted a unified india he was a pashtun when he died he was buried i believe in jalalabad in afghanistan and he wanted a unified india so he was a pashtun his and and his polit- his uh, political movement was called the khudai khidmatgars uh, they were all pashtuns a completely non-violent movement yeah he fought for a unified india mr gandhi agreed to the partition of india to no one's great surprise and when this happened khan abdul ghafar khan in his last meeting with gandhi i believe told him that you have thrown us to the wolves and after the partition of india khan abdul ghafar khan spent the majority of the rest of his life under house arrest in pakistan so that's the tragic story of this great man he was a true patriot a true indian more patriotic and more indian than certain other leaders you can think of so yeah it doesn't mean that the pashtuns of afghanistan wanted wanted to join india but the pashtuns who lived in pakistan under his leadership wanted a unified india that's what they were fighting for and they were betrayed okay um certain questions are being repeated but uh, let's see uh what else do we have there are mentions of ufos in indian literature in rigveda how come we are still so clueless about it mm uh so that's interesting i have never heard of this uh if you have come across this you could put that in the comments where exactly in which part of the rigveda there is a mention of ufos and i'll certainly look into that as far as i know i've never heard of this before but if it is true that would be really interesting so please do that please put that in the comments not in the chat when this live stream is over put that in the comments if you have the actual references and i will certainly take a look at that um what books do you like in fiction genre i want to start reading just like you um in fiction i used to read a lot of science fiction a lot of science fiction all the greats in science fiction asimov arthur c clarke uh, and so on nowadays i have other books in other newer writers uh, you may not have seen my other book collection i have way more books here we will see that later <laughs> so on so yeah uh, i 
I like detective fiction. I like historical fiction. I like science fiction. Um, what books do I like? I'll I read as many books as I can. I don't have any. I don't have any list of books that I can tell you. I, I don't even remember how many books I've read. So I would say, read as much as you can. And if you want to know what which books are good, go to Amazon. See the reviews, uh, books that have good ratings, four point four, four point five, and above, with lots of reviews. That those are typically good books. Hopefully, uh, the wisdom of the masses is not always good wisdom, but that typically is an indicator that a book would be reasonably good. So you could start like that. Okay, I I think we are at the end of today's session, two hours plus already. So yeah, let's end it here. Thank you very much for all of your questions. As always, interesting, fascinating questions, some of them. And let's continue this next week. Thank you very much. Take care. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Work out every day. And keep going. Take, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.